This is the Disciple Makers Podcast by Discipleship.org. You're listening to Season 7, and every week this season will bring you content about making disciples. Discipleship.org brings together other like-minded organizations who are focused on making disciples. Our goal is to help you become a Jesus-style disciple maker. You're about to hear from Disciple First, a Discipleship.org partner. But before we jump into this episode, I want to share with you a related resource written by Disciple First's founder. It's something you can download for free. Founder Craig Etheridge wrote Invest in a Few. It's a short ebook about getting started with discipleship personally by investing in just a few people. It's a short, practical, and relatable resource. Download it at discipleship.org slash ebooks. Today's episode features the organization called Disciple First, and it's from their track at the National Disciple Making Forum called Leading Your Church to Become an Intentional Disciple Making Church. The episode for today is a panel discussion question and answer with the Disciple First team. Take a listen. Okay, folks. Uh, well, I've got 10.15, so we're going to go ahead and roll into our uh, Q&A session. Uh, I'm going to invite our panel to come have a seat up here. Uh, Gibson Largent that taught our session on disciple-making and church planting. Uh, and then Brent Parker, who just led our session on disciple-making and revitalization. Then Dr. Chris Moody here that is uh, led our session on leadership development. And then I did a, a brief session on um, uh, vision casting and casting, crafting and casting a vision for disciple making. And so um, what I'd like for us to do is to, um, if you guys could give us just a very quick, like maybe minute and a half, two minute. Uh, can you say that to preachers and then they ever stay in that time frame? Probably not. Uh, summary of just kind of what your group was about, just kind of because not everybody has been in every one of these sessions, but just a quick, uh, in a nutshell, summary of what you talked about, two minutes. And then what we'll do is from there, we're going to start uh, asking you guys questions. We're going to flip the tables here a little bit. We're going to ask you what you're struggling with, what questions are coming up. Chronically, what are what are some problems that you're facing uh, that as you've been wrestling through all this stuff with us? We want to know what's going on in your mind, and then uh, I'll pitch it to our panel to for us to all to kick it around. Okay, so we'll start with you, Gibb. Okay, uh, I'm Gibson Largent, and the nutshell of the church planting and disciple making session that I led yesterday was basically asking the question: Can you plant a church? without planting a worship service, attracting a crowd, and then from that crowd eventually hammering out a disciple-making process. But can you plant a church starting with a disciple-making process that will eventually uh, build into a church? And so that was my experience. Uh, we did plant a church in the Philadelphia suburbs using a disciple-making strategy. That church has since merged with a 300-year-old Mennonite church that also has included a revitalization session aspect to it. And so that's what my session was about. 
So my name is Brent Parker. We just finished up a disciple making and revitalization, talking about how for years we've incorporated perhaps the wrong model of growth, growth by addition, when biblically it seems that the healthy model is growth by multiplication, meaning that instead of just trying to draw people in in a consumer-driven format, we need to really drive people out in a, in a commission-driven format. We talked about how you have to have those key areas of why we exist to make disciples, what are going to be our non-negotiables, our core values, which relates to your, your culture. And then lastly, you've got to have a pathway. How are we going to do that? And so we just try to do a few practicals of that, trying to give you just a, a snapshot. And like I said, I, that, I'm not an originalist. I'm all about seeing what others do and just trying to tweak it for my context. And so Craig guided me and my team with those four steps of explore, connect. His is grow and multiply. Ours is invest. And so just trying to give you the biblical paradigm that we believe will help guide you to good, healthy, sustainable growth over a longer period of time and a healthy church. Uh, my name is Chris Moody. I'm a pastor down in Texas as well. We, in our breakout session, talked about some leadership axioms that come from a disciple-making culture. And we rattled off a bunch like language matters and you got to find not the most qualified leaders. you got to find qualified leaders. But it really broke down or connected most in the area of that we make leaders. Leaders are made, not born. Um, and so we have to develop leaders, which assumes a disciple-making process, that you disciple them. That's the answer in our church staff. And uh, a lot of what we do at Liberty University, I, I'm a professor for them. And in theology, we, we highlight a ecclesiology, a doctrine of the church related to exactly what you've been hearing. That church is disciple-making. Um, and so in disciple-making, you find a lot of answers to church leadership issues. And so we talked in the breakout session about how we have to develop maturity. we gotta, we got to connect character and develop character. we gotta, we got to develop competency. We have to develop the calling. We have to develop... Uh, the confidence in our leaders, and that's disciple-making. So we explored what that looks like in a very, very much a down-to-earth model of hands and hearts uh, for disciple-making. And uh, I'm Craig Etheridge, and in our first session, we talked about crafting and casting a disciple-making vision. If vision is where it all begins with casting this vision to your church, how do you do that? And we said the misnomer is that our casting vision is simply a sermon on Sunday. When in actuality, there are five levels of vision casting that's required for this vision to be, uh, be clearly communicated to uh, your church. You have to cast vision level one to yourself. You have to be fully committed as a disciple and committed to multiplication on your own, or you will never lead the church to do that. Number two, cast it to your small group so that they begin to follow your example. Number three, casting it then ultimately to your church congregation. And we talked about some ways to do that that were effective, so a couple of steps in there. Uh, Level four is casting it to other leaders that are not within your church, other uh, pastors, other youth pastors, other uh, colleagues uh, in your area that can begin to understand disciple-making. And then lastly, casting it through church planting by planting new churches that start with the DNA of disciple-making that will multiply. And so that was what the first session uh, was about. Okay, so this is kind of giving you a brief little overview of what we talked about in our sessions prior to now. Uh, what I want to hear is what's going on in your mind. I want to know what are you thinking about. Many of you, this may be the first 
kind of thought toward disciple making. Some of you are actually engaged in it, and you're you're hitting challenges. All these guys have got battle scars. All right, uh, uh, practically, how does this work? So, um, what I like to do is to see what questions you have, or just what things you're dealing with that we could all have a discussion. What I'm going to do is I'm going to walk around with the mic. It's not that we necessarily have to have it to hear each other, but we have to have it so that your question is recorded so that when you go back to this podcast, you can hear the question. Otherwise, we're constantly we're going to be repeating your question. Okay? So, uh, let's talk about it. Who, who's in the engagement? Yes, sir, right here. I'd like to ask uh, Dr. Moody uh, what he meant yesterday about a type of vocabulary when it comes to using the same phraseology, terminology with your leadership. Could you expand on that a little bit more? So when I say language matters, um, I, am, I am recognizing, uh, number one, the terrible state the church is in. Number two, the terrible state theology is in. Uh, when we use words even like disciple or discipleship or discipling or church, those words, even the word Christian has lost its meaning in our culture. Um, there's a quick little chapter in Bill Heibel's books on axioms, the very first chapter, and it's called Language Matters. That's his very, just two little, three little pages. But that got me thinking a lot about how hard it is. I have three daughters, and I disciple my daughters, and how hard it is in our culture to disciple them when everything is pushing them a different direction with different definitions and different concepts. And then as you move from your family to your church family, it's even worse. And so uh, in order to have a constant drumbeat as to whether it's the disciples path or the leadership pipeline that you're creating in your faith family, um, it starts with you as a lead pastor, a lead communicator, and then it trickles down. I mentioned last week or yesterday a top-down, inside-out kind of leadership model. Well, it starts with the top leaders and moves down in terms of the language. Um, in, in our classes at Liberty University, I'm often realizing how much heresy we spill when it comes to language. Uh, If you said, hey, we're in church today, that's bad, bad theology. Not one single place in the New Testament does Jesus or his followers use the word ekklesia or kuriakos or whatever the word is in the Bible. Um, They do not use it for a space or a place or an event at all. Jesus, in Matthew 16, coins the term ecclesia, right? He uses it at the great, what we call the great confession of Peter. Peter gives the great confession, gives the gospel, and Jesus says to him, heaven and earth in it, or heaven, earth, no one on earth and nothing, uh, no person has revealed that to you except my Father in heaven has, and upon this I will build my church, right? And he uses that term. So of course, he's saying a bunch of things there. I will build my church. It's built upon the gospel. It's something God does, not something you'll do, but it'll be through the gospel. And then he develops how he wants to see his church move forward. And so this, this doctrine of the church is a missional thing. It's a, it's a disciple-making thing. And nowhere in the Bible does it have the lost coming to the church. Nowhere. Nowhere in the New Testament or Old Testament is the lost coming to the church. Now, the church is going to the lost. And so evangelism is connected into our very terms and our very definition of the church. And so if, if we're going to be New Testament, if we're going to be biblical and theological, the church has to go to the people. 
Right? In the Old Testament, the people went to the temple. In the New Testament, we're called temples, and we're called to go to the people. Well, that's incredibly important language. And so it goes really down to, to that level. I, I learned, I did a church plan. I was part of a church plan for seven years. And now I've been a part of revitalization for about 12. And I learned whether it's church plan or revitalization, that the way people use words says more about the culture and more about their understanding of the process than anything else. So in, in leadership and in onboarding new leaders, onboarding staff members, we start right there. And we become uh, pretty anal about it in terms of how they use those terms, because I don't want to fight culture on levels that uh, come down to just how we use words. And so don't we, we tell our people, don't, don't go to church, we are the church. The very last thing, it's become, a, it's become almost a slogan in our church, the very last thing we say is people leave, is go be the church. There's a huge sign as you're driving down the main boulevard of our, of our campus that says go be the church and acknowledging the power of language. So that's, that's what I meant by it. Answer your question. Yes. I didn't know if you had a list of phrases. That phrases. All right. Let me give you a few. Number one, ecclesiology. What, how do we use the word church? Number two, what do we call ourselves? Do we call ourselves Christians or disciples? Only twice in the New Testament is the word Christian mentioned. It's used by as a derogatory term over the enemies from the enemies of God towards the church. It was a, it was a derogatory term. You so-called Christians. Right? The word disciple, defining disciple, defining church. Here's another word. What do we call our members? Do we just call them disciples? Is the word member in the Bible? Is the word member? It actually is. In 1 Corinthians 12, he says we are members of the body. Well, that word in Greek means body part. And so, you know, for about half a second and a laugh, we say, well, let's call everybody body parts. That, you know, have a body part workshop. That sounds weird. And so we, we actually take our cues from Philippians 1.5, which says we partner together for the gospel. So we call our church uh, people, we call them partners. And we have a partnership workshop. And it's about what part you're playing, not what pew you're warming, right? And so partnership is another term that we use. We took our bylaws, constitution, all of our language, and we don't use the word member at all. We use the word partner. And so we've spelled out what does church mean, what does Disciple mean what is disciples a verb and a noun? All right, a parent parents that's another what we call a verb noun agreement or a, a adverbial noun. It has a verb in the noun. A parent parents a disciple disciples in Greek. Those words are both ways. It's a verb and a noun. Uh, the word church um, has a, a verbal quality to it, and so those are those would be the top three or four words that I'd highlight. Cool. Great. Uh, when it comes to language, in our context, we found that uh, we were using phrases explore, connect, grow, multiply to articulate a disciple-making pathway. Mm-hmm. However, we were using tools that did not use those same words. Mm-hmm. So what we would do is we would t- use a tool and we'd say, well, in our church, the way we say it is this, which can be muddy the water, so to speak, as far as language goes. And so... Uh, one of the reasons why we wrote the materials, one of many reasons why we wrote uh, the GROW series that we offer is it uses those terms, explore, connect, grow, multiply, and people understand them. So now that goes all the way through the body. So I think just using certain terms to uh, clearly define a disciple, clearly define your pathway, and having tools that match that is very important. Unfortunately, most of the tools that are out there are not really written by church people 
they're written by parachurch people, right? So they're written by navigators, crusade, but they've done a great job, right? I've, got, I've used them for years, but they don't they don't translate oftentimes into the context of a local church for that reason. And so we, we felt like it was necessary to write something that would help translate into your church. So just another add, anything you guys want to add to that question? All right, what else is in your on your mind? Yes? So uh, quick question on the first one. When If I'm a member, you disciple me, man, I'm fired up. I went through the three blue books, let's say, and I've got three or four men that want me to disciple them. Do, do, uh, do I go buy the books? Does the church give me the books? Do I ask these guys, these guys too? So this, that's one question. The second one is, how often do you run into, I'm the member again, I'm discipling guys, they start asking questions that's just a little, they're struggling with Calvinism or they're struggling with grace, and it's just a little more than I can handle. I need to bring you into the equation. Does that happen a lot whenever uh, you see second and third generations discipling? Right, yeah. All right, so that's a really great question. Uh, so I'll, I'll take a stab at it, and I'll pitch it over uh, Brent, and let Brent give it a, a whirl at it, and give you a chance to think about it. Yeah, thank you. Uh, <laughs> I <laughs> yeah. All theological questions go to Moody. I just say, just call Chris. Here's his number. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, so yeah, your first question is how do we get books and that kind of thing. It's a very, very uh, fundamental question. So the way uh, our church does it is that our church purchase in advance a certain number of books that we keep in inventory. Okay. And then when somebody wants to disciple, let's say, Rance, Rance is your name. Hey, I remember that. Your tag wouldn't even turn around for that. There you go. So Rance, um, Rance says, hey, I want to take a group of guys. What he does is he goes to our church website, and, and you register there for those books, and then they're set out for you to pick up. The reason why we do that is that that's our way of having some documentation of who's discipling who. Otherwise, it gets away from you really, really fast. And it's still getting away from us. We're, we're still having people decide when we're like, how did you even get a book? I don't know. You know, there's a black market, I guess, out there. You know, I'm not sure how. But, you know, my point is that, that once you get three or four generations deep, you know, I told one guy in one of our cohorts, you can have a movement or you can have control, but you can't have both. Yeah. And and if you really want to move it, it's going to get get away from you. So the best we can try is that we ask them to go to the website to register their group, and then those books are set out for them to pick up. That's how it works practically in our church. Now, when I sit down with my group of guys, I'll say, "Hey guys, uh, these books are ten bucks piece, yeah. and so if you can afford ten bucks, great. If not, that's fine too." And then usually our guys will. Pay ten bucks a piece. That's a reduced price, but the church has bought them in in a bulk, so they've got a cheaper discount. And so, really, ten dollars is not that much for people for a big thick book like that. And so, well, I just collect the money and I send it back to the person I got the books from, and that's how we handle it. Um, with regard to uh, answering questions, um, you know what's interesting is that I very seldom hear that. Now I, I know that there, I'm sure it's happening, right? Because it's 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 uh, it's messy when you're dealing with people, and I know you get into situations, whether it be theological or where they where they're uh, you know emotional problems or marriage issues or addiction issues. You know, I'm sure I know that that's there, but I very seldom have a lot of people coming. Going, I don't know what to do with this person. Yeah. 
Um, but what we just tell our people, our disciple makers, our multipliers, these are the people in the multiply phase that are actually multiplying their life. We gather them together about once a quarter. And so we're constantly problem solving with them. Hey, what's going on? What are you hearing? What are you dealing with? You know, what are resources available for you? And um, we tell them all the time, hey, if you get in a situation where you're just not sure, the best answer is to go, I don't know, let's go find out. And then come to one of our pastors. And we will help you. And if we don't know, then we'll figure it out together. Okay, just we're always here to help you. Uh, but many times, we, I just tell you, know, many times the Spirit of God's going to give you wisdom. You know, you don't have to always run to somebody else. You know, God, God can give you discernment and wisdom. You know, you're competent. You know, you have the Holy Spirit within you and the Bible in your hand, right? You can do this. And so I think otherwise, I don't want them to think I'm, I'm totally incompetent to answer a question. But we're here to help out uh, any way we can. So that's kind of how that works. Let me let me let Brent answer this, and then we're going to come back to your question. Uh, yeah, I'll stay on that same thread for a moment. Um, if we're truly going to follow Jesus' model, every every question was a teachable moment for him. Anytime his disciples posed something to him, whether it was something that was going along in the groups that were following, or whether it was a parable he taught, and they just didn't get it. He never just, yeah, he chastised from time to time, but he always, he would use that as a teachable moment. And so what I've done in my context is I've said, well, I mean, I could have given them a point blank. I mean, I took systematic for, you know, three or four years. I'm not a moody, and just this wealth of encyclopedic knowledge, but um, I can guide them. And so I'll say, number one, I'll say, well, what's your tool? You know, what kind of Bible do you have? You know, I'll make sure they've got a good study Bible. And then once I find that to be true, I'll say, well, let's meet so-and-so, you know, either at lunch or something, and I'll guide them into discovering. I won't just show them the text. I'll show them how to let the Scripture guide them through getting a good biblical knowledge to answer that question. Because my whole goal is to equip them to be ready in season and out of season. I want them to be able to answer it for them. And if they do self-discovery, I'm a big self-discovery guy. Even though I spend hour after hour to do large group lecturing, I'm huge on self-discovery. I want them to discover it on their own. And so that's my model is saying, hey, let's meet, and then I'll just guide them carefully, but let them drive it through discerning what scriptures speak to that issue, and then almost kind of formulating a systematic for how to answer that correctly moving forward. So hopefully that's beneficial for you, brother. Great. Uh, gotquestions.com. Anybody know, know that website? Yeah. yeah. It's a great website. It's I mean, you can type in just about any question, theological question, whatever, and, and it will pop up biblical question, and it's right there at your fingertips. I use that all Got the time. Gotquestions.com. Really so, good. Yeah. It's solid. It's solid there. theological. Sure. Loud and proud. So it's explored. Loud. <laughs> Go Tigers. Um, so my question is about some of the, the resources, and, and, and I've sat through most of these seminars. Um, what, what do you see as the, what do you assume is the, the foundational part of placement of someone that you're, you're going to disciple? So sometimes when we're just talking about disciple making, it, it has a strong evangelistic component. Is there an assumption that somebody doesn't know anything about Jesus, or is there a general assumption that they've decided to follow Jesus and we're, we're talking about how to how to help them grow in that in that walk huge question all right so uh, again his question is where where is this person dropping into the process and I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna give an answer and I'm gonna let Gibson 
uh, speak to that. When you talk about explore, connect, grow, and multiply, this is the four-step process that we believe comes right out of the life of Christ. Uh, this is explained more deeply in the book, Bold Moves. So I encourage you, if you don't have that, uh, we unpack all this. We didn't even cover this in our sessions, all right? This is stuff that we do cover in our forums quite frequently. Yeah, Brent mentioned, mentioned it briefly. Except he had but, uh, we, we normally do a four-hour training just on this. Uh, where we dive deeper in, in the life of Christ and how he did it. Unfortunately, we don't have time to do that today. But this is normally where a conversion process would happen, right? From the explore to connect, right? Connecting means connecting Christ, connecting the church, connecting in a group, and connecting in service. And so people jump into the process normally in these two stages, right? Because this is the process where they're going to actually be trained. Okay, they're going to be trained in this growth phase. This is where they're they're in some kind of discipling relationship, and then they move out of that to multiply what they've learned in the lives of others. So usually they're coming from one of these two groups. Now, uh, in in a uh, in an established church, many times you start with people that are already in your connect phase. They're already part of your church. They're already maybe in leadership positions, something like that. That you know, Paul told Timothy, the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to reliable men who will then teach others also. Those are people here that have already proven to be reliable, mature people that you could disciple, and then you know they would multiply well. So normally, what I've done is started here uh, with some great. That's what that's what you did. Uh, started with your staff and started with some key leaders here, training them up so that they could then be great multipliers. But obviously, you don't want to only fish here. You want to try to get people that are far from God and lead them to Christ and then disciple them. And so really, some people call this uh, discipleship pre-conversion, right? And, and what that means is you're just trying to lead them to the Lord, right? Uh, sometimes I think those terms get a little muddy. But, so we have tools. We have a, a, what's called Explore Study that's designed for people that are exploring the claims of Christ. They don't know Jesus, but it's a great study. Uh, and then hopefully leading them to cross that line of faith so that they connect with the church, and then you can move them over. So a lot of times we fish for uh, people to move here out of our, what you might call Sunday school classes or small groups or things like that. These are fishing ponds, if you will to get people to be discipled and then to multiply. But you can also fish here, uh, people that are far from God and that do not know Christ, and you're discipling them to, to Jesus and then from there. So, uh, Gibson, I'd like for you to talk a little bit about what that has looked like in your context because you've actually done both. Um, that's right. In the church planting context, um, I think it's in the, uh, 1 Samuel 22.2, it says that, uh, that everyone who is in debt and everyone who was distressed, and everyone who was discontent and in despair gathered to David in the wilderness. And so David had a real a real interesting group of people. And, uh, and so in church plant context, it's very similar, that, that the people who are coming to a storefront or to an elementary school, we met in a park under a tree for nine or for five months and in a bounce house. The kinds of people who are going to that are not like the polished church hopping kind of folks. They're or there are people who are in a different situation. And so in order for us to drop them into the, the disciple-making place, um, we found that, that, that helping people detox from wherever they were 
in the disciple making process is, is necessary yep. to evaluate where somebody is. Uh, I've met with a guy that I thought would be a good disciple, and what turned out to be what I thought was a good discipling opportunity turned into a lot of baggage in regard to sexual abuse that happened within the church. Uh, and so an enormous amount of, uh, of our energy and time in the beginning was helping him where he was. Uh, and, 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 and some of that had to do with his relationship with God, repairing some of these big breaches and sending him on to some professional counseling. Um, that's not solved by a discipleship program or process. It is, but, but it takes a little extra work to, to know where to take a guy from a different situation. And so there has to be some discernment, some ability to say, to take somebody where they are and to identify where, what's most needed. Are they in Christ? And if they're in Christ, then uh, maybe helping them connect to the local body of believers or uh, connecting in a different way to a church or even to counseling. There are a number of paths that a person needs to get to from where they are. So um, I think helping understand the process and helping be able to assess where a person is is an invaluable skill in this in this disciple making journey. Very good. Yes, the uh, material that you use at your church, you that you have produced, uh, I haven't got to read through it yet. So this may be a, a moot question. But what do you use with your kids? With your with your elementary age and high school age students, what is your what does your disciple making uh, curriculum and process look like with them? Yeah, that's a really great question. Uh, so there are there are some good tools that are out there. Uh, obviously, um, I, I could list off several, but you probably already know them. Um, in our church specifically. Our students are taking the content out of our book and they are re kind of forming it into a youth version that's a little bit a uh, little bit smaller. You know, we're not going to hand them a big old thick book, maybe a little bit smaller, but kind of distilling out those really gems that we want them to have and redesigning it into a youth format. So they're working on that right now. Um, good thing is, hopefully in 2020, we will have a youth version uh, available because we get that question a lot. Hey, this is great for adults, but what do you got for students? So uh, we are working on that. We've already commissioned our, our youth pastor to help us in the redesign of that. So the content's the same, but it's just a little bit different uh, packaging and uh, uh, not quite as voluminous, you know, uh, for students and, and so on. So that's what we're doing for students. For kids, uh, we actually do the same thing for kids. We have, we have an even simpler simpler version that they've taken out of our tools uh, to, to work with our kids as well. Of course, this is in addition to we have Sunday school curriculum and other things like that, you know, but just in that growth phase, that training, they're taking elements out of these resources. So... Uh, unfortunately, we don't. We're not. We don't have all those dialed in to to make available yet. But I do think that by by the end of 2020, we will have a student version, uh, which will be very helpful. All right. 1997, I started working in Awana Club Ministries. I, I was led to Christ through Campus Crusade for Christ, and a guy named Todd, in less than a week, started discipling me. 
Uh, I went through Bible churches in college, main one, main one in College Station. Left there, went to Dallas Seminary, and in 1997, I found myself at a faith family having a Wana club. And so I'm upwards, what is that, almost 20 years in a Wana club ministry. I've been every position in that in that organization. What I love is if you look at a lot of the disciple-making speakers who talk about disciple-making among parents and their kids, a lot of them, Rob Reno and so many of these others, they come out of that Awana Club background. And so we have seen Awana Club for us to give us the tools to disciple our kids at home. Matter of fact, they pushed a big packet of things called Awana at Home. And it's all about and connects to this idea that the mom and dad are the primary faith trainers of the home. And I, I don't have a, a master's, bachelor's, doctorate in and child development psychology, but some of those guys do. And so I have discipled all three of my daughters using the Awana handbooks up to up to grade six. And I, right now I have a sixth grader, an eighth grader, and a tenth grader. And all three of my children have gone through every single Awana handbook. And for us, it's not so much about the Wednesday night report time, but it's every morning. I, I get up at six. By 6.20, I'm sitting at the table with my uh, three daughters and if they had a Wana club, they would pull out their Wana book and they're memorizing and I'm asking them questions and they're doing projects and we're writing notes to missionaries, but I am very engaged. So the things I learned with adults and how to disciple adults, obviously it all moves over into my children's life. How to ask a good discipling question, how to hold people accountable, how to, how to do all that. And the discipling books that Awana produces is, are age graded. So I don't have to worry about what my five-year-old understands versus my 15-year-old they have material for high schoolers, but we stop it at age um, 13, and then our youth pastor has developed, with the help of Southwestern Seminary, a free material on the Southwestern Seminary website called D6, and we've taken it, and he goes about two weeks in the summer and goes, gets away and redoes it a little bit to fit who we are, and he develops a one-year discipling tool for all the, the, the later middle schoolers, high schoolers. And so now I have two sitting at the breakfast table with those books out. And all week we've been talking this, this week on uh, the humanity of Christ. And so they're doing, they have a number of little assignments. And then it, I ask them questions about that. And in the material on Friday, which would have been today, but I'm with y'all, uh, it asks me a question. And I basically get a chance with my children to summarize everything they just learned that week. And it's all done at the breakfast table or at lunch, or dinner, or wherever you disciple your children. And so we have tools for the high schoolers, and the middle schoolers, and the elementary related to a tool for the parent to use to disciple them. So that's what we've done. Um, I believe in retreats, and camps, and mission trips. All three of my daughters have now gone on an international mission trip, and I've spent at least three days on a mission trip going village to village to village, sharing Christ. And all three of my daughters have seen people come to faith in Christ on the mission field and then begin discipling from that local church. All three of my daughters have shared their faith internationally. All three of my daughters have won one of their friends to Christ. And all that's because of disciple-making, not because of fancy programs or events or strategies or trips. It's because of disciple-making, right? So they all know a gospel presentation, uh, the one that that, um, Craig has come up with that's in the book is is what I taught them the path, and they can they can draw that out and have a conversation, uh, whether it's in Portland or Kathmandu, Nepal, or Brazil, or wherever, and they've all gone. 
And so it's just bringing them with me and doing it with them. My, my youngest child, my 12-year-old, saw, saw five people come to faith in Kathmandu this summer because of her witness. Five. Amazing. You think she's different? And she's been a totally different child since we got back from Nepal um, because of that. I was right there with her. Sorry. Um, is there a multiplication um, part of that um, built into the, the cycle? For children. Yeah. So... Obviously, when it comes to discipling, the guys I disciple, they're not all ready to multiply until they're ready to multiply. And children, obviously, there's a longer path there. Um, I, I teach my children to share their faith with their friends, and we pray. We have names. I know which kids my kids are praying for for their salvation. Uh, last, two years ago, they led their band director to the Lord. We got to baptize him. They led him to the Lord. They've all led one of their friends to Christ, and we baptized them. And so... They're not ready to disciple yet, um, but they're ready to share their faith and be a disciple maker at that that Explore Connect stage. Um, But in our way of doing it, your junior and senior year, there are some that are ready. And so we have about 60 uh, D groups, not the parents. that's, That's understood. The parents disciple their own kids. But we actually have a lot of kids like your church who don't have parents who are disciplers. So we disciple them through college age and on up, and they, these groups of three, and they meet on Sunday morning. We don't have a Sunday school. We have our D6 groups meet on Sunday morning. And so for an hour, uh, one-on-two, one-on-three groups of mainly college and 20-year-olds are meeting with high schoolers who do not have families that are discipling them. And we've got about 60 of those groups. And in that group, those 60 groups, we let... Right now, there's about six of those groups that are led by high school seniors, and they have shown that they can disciple. Now, we put them with middle schoolers, but they've shown they know how to invest their lives in others. My daughter has, wants to do it, my oldest. She, she volunteered. She wants to disciple somebody her junior year. Uh, I'm, I'm her dad, so I'm going to let the, the youth pastor make that decision. Um, if, if he thinks she's ready to disciple her junior year, I'm cool with it. Otherwise, I'll defer, right? But we do. We do let junior, senior year, if they are super mature and can invest themselves in others, we'll let them disciple. Okay? Did that answer your question? Great. Jeff's been very patient. All right. Thank you, Jeff. My situation, uh, I'm an associate pastor. I'm sure this applies to all groups. A senior pastor who is that visionary and the rest of the staff, they're kind of in the weeds. We're doing the activity kind of stuff. I've, I'm sold out on this. How do I get the rest of the staff to transition to this being really the point and not so much activity and the way we've always done it? All right. How do I get my senior pastor on board? Brent? Wow. Toughest question. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question because the key is he's going to have to be on board with this. I would say approach lovingly, and uh, but yet passionately say you know maybe through it again through that discovery model, you know evaluating, encouraging him to evaluate what's going on. Is he satisfied with what's going on? Is he just putting up a front that he's satisfied but with, within his heart? He's frustrated. You know, I don't know what kind of relationship you guys have. That's going to be great as well. I mean, if you have a genuine relationship where there's authenticity and, and there's vulnerability, and that may be your first step, brother, is trying to get that built to where he's willing to open up and say, hey, look, I've exerted all this energy. 
And I realize we're no closer to having Christ-like people today than we were yesterday. And, and saying, hey, can I speak into that? Uh, gaining his trust to where you can speak into his heart. Because I, I'm at a disadvantage here because I'm the visionary. I'm, the, I'm driving the train. Um, but if I was in that situation, that's probably the way I would go about it, is trying to gain his trust to say, hey, look, I feel your frustration. Instead of coming to him frustrated, um, I told a young man, uh, one of the young man I'm discipling, the young pastor, I said, you cannot lead your congregation out of a frustration where they are. You've got to lead out of a focus of where, you're, where God wants you to be. Because that's what he's doing right now. He's frustrated with where they are, and he's wanting to cut this. And, and so, back to your question, I always just try to begin building that relationship with the pastor, seeking vulnerability, seeking authenticity to where you can begin to speak in his heart and let him know that I'm right here as a fellow co-worker of Christ to help you in this journey. And let's, let's see where God's leading us toward becoming a disciple-making church. Hope that at least begins to answer some of that question for you, brother. Gibson, yeah, I wanted to pitch it to you because you've actually been in the second chair before you were a church planter. So. Yeah, that's right. I was thinking through as you asked that question. I was an associate pastor for 15 years on staff at various churches. And, and when I became a senior pastor, when I planted a church, I realized that it's only the difference between being a babysitter and being a parent. <laughs> and so I found out that, uh, you know, as a senior pastor, the amount of stress and responsibility and the weight of the ministry and the weight of shepherding and the weight of all that is a tremendous burden that pastors bear. And so coming to a senior pastor uh, as an associate pastor in the past, I didn't have as much compassion and I didn't have as much empathy for what the senior pastor goes through. And so raise your hand if you're a senior pastor in the room. God bless you. Uh, I, I, I think the world of you and, uh, and, and I understand from an associate pastor point of view um, how Many times I've probably sinned against my senior pastor without knowing it. So that's the first thing I, I, I kind of understand. Um, secondly, I guess maybe, maybe what I would suggest is that you, God has put you in a role as an associate pastor over an area. And you're, as you implement this in the area that you have, God has given you an area. And if you're faithful in those small areas, then he will enlarge your territory. Not to sound too... Uh, prayer of Jabez. <laughs> but, but I do believe it's true that if you if you serve faithfully and if you're over youth and you implement this in your youth program and you get your youth program in a disciple-making way, then that has impact on your senior pastor. Right? So that's maybe how I would answer that. That's a great word. You know, uh, pastors are incredibly pragmatic people. And if they see something working in one area then they're more out to say, hey, well, maybe we should do this in other areas, you know. So uh, also it gives them not, you know, it helps them not be afraid of what you're talking about because they see the results. Yes, sir. Um, I'm from a church in England. And um, whilst we're um, working with Bonhoeffer Project, it was one of our elders that called the vision first. And he kept saying to our pastor, you need to look at this. You need to look at this discipleship. Pastor said, oh, no, you know, I'm too busy, I'm doing this. In the end, he bought him a ticket to come over here, and uh, the pastor just didn't have any, any choice in it. He had to come to this conference a couple of years ago, and he's fully on board, and we're, we're working. Um, I mean, we went through some cohorts last year, um, and I'm just starting on a cohort this year. So it's, it's already, you know, two or three years down the line, it's already multiplying. 
Great work. Fantastic. Just take him to a conference. <laughs> yes, Craig has been patient here. Yes. In the formal discipling um, arrangement, I just wondered, do you have um, non-negotiables in, uh, say, a situation where they're not doing the work, they're lagging, they seem to be losing interest in the process you're leading them through? Uh, if you could just speak to that. Yeah. Yeah, that never happens to any of us, right? <laughs> well, the interesting thing is when you look at the life of Christ back to explore, connect, grow, multiply, this is taken out of the life of Jesus, that Jesus called his men up in multiple times throughout his three-and-a-half-year period. So what's interesting is there are multiple asks of him, asking them, I'll make you fishers of men, asking them uh, to be one of the 12, asking them to multiply. These are multiple asks. And so I think that um, the way that we developed our material, the Grow Series, is one book is seven weeks, another one is seven weeks, another one is seven weeks. And that's because every time you re-up the ask, and it gives somebody an opportunity to drop out, or it gives sometimes an opportunity for you to have a, a conversation with them about, hey, does it look like, you know, this is a good time for you? I mean, I've had guys where, you know, they're not coming, they're not prepared, they're not, and uh, you're kind of halfway through the resource, you got a couple weeks left, and you're just like, hey, man, um, obviously this probably isn't a good time for you. Why don't we just, you know, you can step off. You don't have to go on to book two. But when... When you're ready, then I want to re-up. I started with five guys. I only have three that are going with me in book three. Two of them dropped out. One guy had chronic travel issues. He was constantly gone overseas. He was going to miss half of it anyway. He said, look, I, I'm not doing a very good job here because I'm gone all the time. I said, you're right. I said, well, just back you know, off. Well, you can drop off here. And then when your schedule changes, we'll pick you back up. I had another guy that said, hey, I'm super busy. And this X new thing happened to me. I said, great, we'll just uh, we just get through this one and then you can you can step off, we'll keep going, but we'll round back, you know. And I think a lot of times if you give a guy a way to exit with grace, um, you know, you're not wanting to shame anybody or you know, but uh, but nor do you want them to continue to come and not be prepared. Uh, I think both are damaging. So you have to have that conversation. You've got to find an easy way to do it. If you read, if you're upping them for 21 weeks, it's then you're clearly are, you know, you didn't make even halfway through it, a quarter way through it. But if you're only asking for six or seven weeks, you're probably only going to find out the problem, you know, a couple weeks in. You're already kind of halfway there. You can kind of push to the end and and finish and not move forward. That's how that's how I've handled that in our groups. Uh, yep. Um, yeah, we we I, this is totally wrong. When I ordered materials uh, last last spring, I ordered twenty walk books, I ordered twenty reach books, and twenty invest books. And what I probably should have done was ordered sixty walks and twenty reaches and four invest books. That's the way kind of the crowd sort of thins out. But but I did take t- almost twenty guys through walk and uh, and. In the midst of that, you could just see guys who were just glazing over, and they just weren't—they just weren't doing the work. And they would come with three to four days not finished, or, or they were just struggling with the material or the availability. And so, being able to kind of help them see a, a place uh, where 
that you know maybe this wasn't the right time for them and giving them a, a place where it wasn't working out uh, was a graceful way to do that and a good way to, to re-up them again for walk in the future. To not let them finish walk and think that they'll be ready to go into reach creates a gap in your discipleship process. So you don't want a guy to finish walk if he's not really understanding what it means to walk with Jesus. Um, at the same time, I, I gave... I didn't give seven guys the option. I said, you're doing reach. <laughs> you're, you're my future. They're, you did everything. You did every day right. And so when I cast an invitation to a lot of people, I didn't give the option for seven guys because I knew that they, that they were on top of it, coming ready, barking out the verses before I could even ask. They were praying for people. They already had their, you know, they were just doing all the work. So that was an easier, that's, that's a good problem to have. Group size is going to be key to that as well. Craig stresses, don't get too big, and, and I was a disobedient disciple, did not listen to him. And I launched seven in my first group, totally overwhelmed. That was a bad move on my part. And I had to ask their forgiveness all through the whole process. Uh, now I'm restricted to three, max four. And the reason why I say that is I'm intentional with them every single day, and I can do that and not be overwhelming. I'm texting them, hey, guys, what did y'all think about this statement today? And if I've got a guy that's not responding at some point in that day, that lets me know, hey, I may need to encourage him a little bit more. Uh, and that's the way I do that is keep my group small. I know we want mass production, but we're making disciples here, you know, not dunking donuts. And so we just need to kind of put the old mass production line aside and take that heavy one-on-two, one-on-three approach. And, and that's the way I, I'm able to really be intentional with my guys. Great. All right. Well, I'm a church that uh, needs revalidation. Um, we are, you know, going down. And uh, I have been, you know, I've been on board with discipling for quite a while. Matter of fact, this gentleman right here, we've discipled him and, and uh, come along very well. But when I want to do that with my leadership, they're not on board. They're not on board whatsoever. And I'm, I'm the senior pastor. Um, I deal with the elders. Uh, but I feel like more of a senior pastor, like a puppet on a string type thing. Uh, do what they say and not, you know, and, and that's it. So I've got, I've got leaders that want to change, but they don't want to change to make any change. Um, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And uh, when I've talked to them about discipling in the past, um, they just, they're not on board with it. They're not on board with relational discipleship. Uh, they're not on board with it pretty much at all. And even when I talk to them about reading scripture, are they devoted to scripture daily? Uh, you know, they, they have a different, different definition of devoted to scripture. Um, so I even have a hard time getting to read scripture daily. Um, so to get them, and one of them just said, I'm just not going to do it. Um, so, and doesn't read very well. And so when I try to say, let's go through this book or this book, I just really just can't do it. Um, so I'm just kind of stuck in this position where I just don't know what to do. Um, so I uh, really would like to get discipleship, you know, be a disciple-making church. But uh, matter of fact, in the last meeting, they told me to stop using the term disciple-maker because people are tired of hearing that. And I think I made a mistake of skipping the vision, you know, going to the church you know, and my preaching and such. So you might see where I'm at. Yes. Thank you, Mark, for sharing that with us. Um, Chris, you want to? <laughs> so I, I, I was where you are 12 years ago, exactly where you are. 
Uh, let me say a couple things. Number one, don't announce the revolution. Just launch the revolution. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you, when you announce it, I mean, look at revolutions in history. They don't announce it. They just revolt. And uh, I had a church. I'm going to use it. I said I haven't used it all week. I had a church that was deacon-possessed. And that might be where you're at. And if I got the same kind of conversations, the same ones. Um, Discipling demands that you pour into those who are going to have the potential to reproduce themselves. There are people in my faith family, even today, that I don't want them to reproduce themselves. Some of the people you're talking about, I don't want them to reproduce themselves. You know, and, and partly it's because of what I talked about yesterday. We we have done leadership development. Uh, we really haven't done leadership development. We we have seen positions in leadership as honorariums, honorific positions, and we found the most qualified, not qualified guys. And because they run a good business, we say, "Well, great, you're a deacon, and they give a lot of money. You're 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 an elder, you know." And we you've inherited this. I get how long you've been there. Sixteen years. All right, some of it you had a part in, right? After 16 years, right? Yeah, and, and we all do. It's not on you. That's why we need Jesus. <laughs> it's not perfection. It's progress. And so I just just revolt. Take two or three guys this year. Uh, that's, that's, to me, Jesus had his three and Jesus had his 12. And, um, uh, two or three guys that you're going to really pour your life into and and, and make them become many yous, many, many me's. And next year, we'll launch them out. In those first years, I had two groups of three. So I had six guys that first year. And of those six, four of them reproduced themselves year two. So it was me and four guys. So five of us. And we took two or three more. So do the number there and had about a two-thirds, half reproduction rate. And by year three, it, it was noticeable. And it became a revolution. And then the women got involved, and it launched even further. And so um, just revolt, you know, 